Greetings, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Today, Tommy and I discussed books three and four that make up mere Christianity, including book three, which is Christian behavior, and book four, which is beyond personality, or the first steps in the doctrine of the Trinity. We spend most of the time discussing the cardinal virtues, as well as Christian sexual morality and what Christian marriage means, as well as some of the harder concepts like understanding that God is outside of time. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Brace. Today in this episode we're just going to be finishing up our review of the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This is a bonus episode. We are used to giving you guys new episodes every two weeks. Uh, we're going back to back weeks here in order to finish up our review of this really interesting book that has spurned a lot of fun conversation. So we got through the first two books of the four that make up the book Mere Christianity and we did talk a little bit about parts of the third and fourth book as well. But making sure we're we're getting the chance to talk about both the virtues and what it means to live out a Christian life and some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts on that. We're going to be continuing. So Tommy, I know that the third book is essentially Christian behavior and it talks about the different parts of morality. What stuck out to you really just, you know, kicking us off here on the second part about Christian morality? I would say uh, two of the things that pop out, and we can kind of go in either direction, were kind of his definitions of the cardinal virtues, and that being prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And I've got those definitions highlighted, and we can either discuss them or kind of talk about those. Uh, and then also... I thought his thoughts on sexual morality and also Christian marriage were interesting. Well, definitely. I think we should we should touch on the cardinal virtues at least at first, but I think some of the things that our listeners might be more interested in would be the marriage and sexual morality in the, in the Christian tradition. So why don't you start us out, what definitions does he give on each of those cardinal virtues. So prudence he defines as practical common sense, taking the trouble to think out what you are doing and what is likely to come out of it. Uh -huh. Temperance is referred to not specifically drinking, but to all pleasures. And it means not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. Justice means fairness. It includes honesty, give and take, truthfulness, keeping promises, and all that side of life. And then, oh geez, which one did I... I missed one. Fortitude. Can't believe I, I said I had it and then I didn't. I'll see if I can pull it up here. Fortitude includes both kinds of courage, the kind that faces danger as well as the kind that sticks it under pain. Guts is perhaps the nearest modern English. You'll notice, of course, that you cannot practice any of these other virtues very long without bringing this one into play. So fortitude is having the almost, it, you know, Courage is, is a similar word there, but it's, it's the ability to continue on on the path you're supposed to be. So whatever that is, if you're you know facing a challenge, it's not taking the easy way out. Fortitude is the opposite of that. Um, Bravery, but, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Those are interesting because, especially like temperance, they aren't very talked about in you know the world today. I think that when you're looking at these, I think, you know, justice is, is talked about a lot when it comes especially to social justice versus personal justice and how we should be approaching things in the law. But even even things like prudence, one example I can I can think of off the top of my head would be quote unquote rape culture in 
college campuses, the idea that victim blaming is a terrible thing. And I think if, if someone is, you know, sexually assaulted, of course, it's the, you know, it's the criminal that should be blamed and put 100% of the blame on. But at the same time, the the idea of, you know, uh, taking the prudential steps ahead of time to mitigate the possibility of that happening to, to you, that's not really talked about these days. You know, if you go out and get blackout drunk and are walking home alone, was that the prudential choice? Of course, if someone decides to then violate, you know, you, they are in the wrong, but you were not, you know, practicing prudence and making sure that you could avoid that as, as, as best you can. You know what I mean? I, I do see what you're saying. I think it's uh, it's a bit far out there, as maybe an example might go. That one's just tough because it's, you know, you, you don't want a victim blame. But at the same time, right, there are things you can do to kind of think about what the secondary and tertiary consequences are for certain actions. And to me, it, it kind of is more about, uh, I guess, the political parties, right? The conservative approach or kind of more right-leaning approach is to kind of think about how these things will affect all these other other areas, right? Like, what are those further on consequences? And then it seems like the more left-leaning approach is try something new. And it seems like it'll be good now, right? But not really thinking through how it'll affect other things. Well, that's, that's an interesting perspective. That it, The way that I heard that then is that in some sense, the, the right-leaning approach is to take a more prudential judgment of things and say, what are the unforeseen consequences of these decisions versus the left-leaning approach has a more, this is what sounds good and makes us feel like we're doing the right thing, even if at the end of the day, it doesn't make, you know, your end goal, you don't end up reaching your end goal, it ends up making things worse in some, you know, unforeseen way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, in a sense. And uh, I think it kind of goes also to the one of the other cardinal virtues, temperance, right? Like, I think there's there's a point at which you need to be thinking about further on consequences. But if you take it too far, right, like nothing, you're not changing anything because of, oh, well, it could do this or it could do that. Whereas, you know, it's also you need to have some temperance in trying new ideas, right? If you're not thinking about what it'll do tomorrow, you know, let alone the next year, you know, maybe, maybe you're reacting instead of kind of thinking about consequences. Well, with temperance, what kind of comes to my mind is, is thinking about how we use some of the technology that we have now. So, you know, whether it's TV or social media or anything like that, where we have all these screens in our lives that no one had, you know, 70 years ago, are we using them to the right distance in our lives? Are we practicing temperance and making sure that, that there is balance between how often we're interacting with that compared to how often we're doing everything else in our life? And really, what should that balance be? I don't think 50-50 necessarily is, that doesn't make sense. So I know growing up for me, we had, you know, I had different video games. I was a Nintendo kid growing up, you know, N64, GameCube, things like that. But and obviously there were TV shows we liked watching too. But in my household, the rule was, you know, one hour a day. That was what that was the screen time essentially got. For some reason, computers weren't necessarily like included in that. That was that was TV and video games. We, we didn't really use computers very much. I think we had like one Mario game on a computer that we <laughs> might have played. But it feels like the kids growing up now get handed screens at a very young age and are very technologically savvy. Do you think that that's a that's an appropriate thought of where temperance isn't really being practiced well in today's society? I mean, I would say it's not being used well in society for many of things. You know, I think a lot of the college movies promote, you know, drinking in excess, giant parties, and, and yeah, it's fun. It's a good time. But continually doing that is 
is not good. Uh, you're not progressing. My buddy, he jokes about drinking is kind of like stealing fun from the future. You're just like taking it from tomorrow and then you just feel like shit the next day. But also in, you know, obesity. I think it's, I, I don't know the most Tem- recent statistic, but. Yeah, and exercising and eating right. That yeah, kind of the idea. For sure. I mean, there are so many obese people right now, and it's it probably goes into a bigger conversation about you know what's advertised and what's actually cheap and why are healthy foods more expensive. And but yeah, I, I think that there's a lack of control in a few different areas that it seems to be seems to be prevalent among most Americans. Yeah, I think temperance would be one of the amazing virtues to bring back to the mainstream and how it would change society. Yeah, I think it's 40% of U.S. adults are uh, obese or morbidly obese. So that's a, a alarming statistic for sure. One of the things that also stuck out to me when reading that section about temperance was just he talks about temperance in today's society when he was writing this back in the 1940s had basically been changed to be only talking about drinking. So if you're practicing temperance, it just meant you weren't an alcoholic, you weren't getting drunk all the time. But he goes on to say, of course, you know, uh, there are many other ways that you cannot be practicing it other than drinking that doesn't necessarily show as easily on the outside, whether it's bridge mania or, or golf mania, that doesn't, you know, make you fall down in the middle of the street. But in God's eyes, it's still, you know, a problem, you know, you're still not balancing your life the way that you should be. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you, man, there's, there's a lot of different areas, you know, where that's not being practiced. And I guess, as again, I'm going to come back to you and, and ask the question as you know, the, the resident Christian of the podcast, asking <laughs> you the residents, you know, unsure slash currently not identifying as a Christian. <laughs> These are the core what we call the cardinal virtues, right? These are the ones that give us direction for our lives, prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude. Do you see those as like, is that a sensical compass to use for life? And if so, you know, do you think that having, you know, not necessarily living by that leads to a, a more detrimental path for life? Well, I, I think with each of them, right, if if you're not using prudence, you're going to make choices that, you know, similar to how we talked about with uh, atomic habits with that, you know, what, what for, what's your first choice in the morning and kind of how that leads your day, right? So if you make a bad choice and you make another bad choice and now, oh my gosh, I had a horrible day, you're not moving towards a kind of a better status. When it comes to temperance, right? You don't want to you don't want to have too much of anything, right? Like just a balance. Um and li- and like we kind of said, obesity, screen time, many things can be taken to an extreme, and I think it makes sense to try and lead a balanced life in that regard. Justice, just kind of thinking about honesty and truthfulness. I mean, I think those are just good virtues to have and being able to kind of use those as a guiding principle, like don't lie, you know, try and stick to your promise. I think that's, again, a positive guide for your future. And then fortitude. I think having the courage to do things that are difficult or hard is, again, kind of like a Atomic Habits chart. Where if you're, you know, making the difficult decision now, it's going to lead you to a better place. Yeah. You know, it's funny with those last two, justice and fortitude, the, what, what was coming to mind as you were talking there was, was thinking about, you said, don't lie. And that made me think of Jordan Peterson's rule, tell the truth or at least don't lie. And then thinking about fortitude, how Jordan Peterson actually rose to prominence by speaking what he perceived as a truth in the error of the law that was being instituted in Canada, and then having the fortitude to stand behind that through the 
you know, tsunami of criticism and attacks that he did. I think, you know, that's a that's an amazing example of showing some of those, well, and, and in the sense, you know, prudence too, of, of not just blindly saying, okay, you know, I understand why this law, it's, you know, it's it's for people's, making sure people's feelings aren't hurt. You know, taking the, the step back and saying, wait, this hasn't been done before. It, it's interesting to see, you know, the people that do portray these virtues really well, in some cases, end up being, you know, uh, below loved and revered in society because it's so rare to see, you know, such shining examples of them in some sense. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would say so. I I would think that most of the kind of authentic, you know, maybe influencers of our current time, you know, it, at least are courageous and say what they believe. And uh, I think it also takes fortitude to walk back if you've said something wrong. And I think, uh, you know, maybe a a decent example of that is is Joe Rogan and he'll oftentimes, you know, start a conversation with, oh, this is, you know, kind of what I think. And then after hearing it, he's like, yeah, I guess I was wrong. To be able to walk back and kind of have the courage to understand that, you know, maybe you were in a place of ignorance or had, had the wrong facts or sorry, you can't really have wrong facts, had the wrong, the wrong opinions or the wrong perceptions of, of the facts, maybe. Correct. But yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, that's that's more prudence, too, because that's. Yeah. You know, if, if you're sitting there following one train of logic and then someone points out the flaw in it, you know, it, it's not courageous to sit there and <laughs> just defend your position because you held it. It makes more sense to go with and say, OK, well, you, you pointed out this flaw and I see where you're coming from and that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I can change my viewpoint and just have the ability, the, the mental ability to not, you know, put your identity in on that viewpoint, but to say, well, thank you for, for giving me a, a, a new point of view and I'll adapt and, and, you know, integrate that into how I see the world. That's, that's great. Uh, anything else on the, on the cardinal virtues here? Or should we kind of talk about social morality and then, and then sexual morality? Yeah, let's, uh, let's go into that. Okay. One piece that I wanted to touch on on social morality, which which happens before sexual morality in the book, a, a quote from C.S. Lewis is, you will find this again and again about anything that is really Christian. Everyone is attracted by bits of it and wants to pick out those bits and leave the rest. And I just wanted, you know, you last episode talked a little bit about how you kind of grew up with the Christianity and water kind of point of view about who God was and all of that. And, and in what we've been talking about so far today, you know, right there, you kind of agree with the four cardinal virtues of Christianity being fairly prime to a flourishing human life or experience. Therefore, do you kind of resonate with that section and say, you know, there are these bits that I really want, but there are these things that hold me back from not really wanting to engage with this more fully? Yeah, I would say that's that's probably definitely one of the things that, that holds me back from, you know, saying I am a Christian or, or not. And I, I think it's probably true with, with most people that, you know, kind of take a look or grew up with parts of it. And it's interesting. It's definitely... It's definitely the thing, probably, I'm not sure I could say exactly what I don't want out of these ideas, but like those, those cardinal virtues, those things, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you had all four of those things and you actually were able to practice them and do them all the time, I think you'd be better off for it. Okay. Just, just wondering there. Cause again, I mean, that kind of stuck out to me as the, 
the people that aren't believing, but in some ways kind of still profess some sort of Christian worldview, even if it's kind of removed from the religious aspects, but still kind of hold on to that morality. It feels like that's kind of how they how they feel a lot of the times. And, and another quote I'll put to you, um, he says, most of us are not really approaching the subject in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hopes of finding support from Christianity for the views that we already hold. Mm. And, and I, I find a lot of the times in the, you know, the people that I talk to that maybe are fallen away Christians or at some point held, you know, maybe a, a, a childish faith, but then never brought it into adulthood. They do that a lot. You know, they'll, they'll say, oh, God is love, which, you know, he touches on in the book as well, but not want to take, you know, the, the judgment aspect of the reality of, you know, heaven and hell and stuff like that into account as well. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm curious what you think of if you can live a morally sound life without believing in God, do you think you could take the idea, you know, in a sense, could you have that Christian in water lifestyle and still live a full life? I guess maybe not if we're thinking life exists afterwards, right? But Yeah, and... It, right. And the I think the, the point that is important for me is that you, you have nothing to point out when you're wrong, because, you know, we talk about, or, you know, in the last episode, we talked about how we have this internal guide that tells us what right and wrong is. And, you know, our conscience, despite having that, there are times when we have to inform our conscience. And if we are trying to do that on our own, we without an external guide, there's no way to correct our built-in flaws. So you can live a mostly moral life, maybe, but where you have those incorrect moral thoughts or moral directions, you have no way of, you know, there, there's no means to correct that. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, if you follow that out for a lifetime, you end up maybe with a lot of correct moral habits, but you will also have incorrect ones. And those will be the ones that will have developed and, you know, metastasized to be your biggest flaws in life. Does hmm. that make sense? I think so. Cool. So we have morality and psychoanalysis. We don't really need to talk about that if you don't want to. And then sexual morality and marriage is a, is a cool section, definitely. Kicking it off, he says, you know, he gives the introduction as to, you know, the virtue of chastity and what that means from the Christian sense. But then, you know, kind of the, the apex of that little section is there's no way of getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence or is kind of the, the Christian rule. So what, what from this section was worth talking about to you? Well, I think it's, you know, a, like he says, it's one of the most unpopular Christian virtues, right? You know, maybe perhaps uh, someone my age and, you know, wouldn't really want to abide by that one, just for instance. Maybe that's one of the things that, for me at least, you know, what, what's the reasoning behind it? So here, can I can I... This will be like the longest section I ever read out of a book, but it's such a good <laughs> analogy, I think. Can I read how he talks about how our sexual appetites have been a little bit morphed? Yes, I think you should. Okay, so he says, this appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. Let's take it another way. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate 
onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think that there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? So, you know, what that section is, is basically saying is that we have these appetites that have a reason behind them. The reason we're hungry is because we need the sustenance. The reason we have the sexual urge is because we need to repopulate the planet and reproduce. So if we are taking it well beyond what that function is, that is feeling the absolute need to have, you know, multiple sex partners and, and lots of sex outside of marriage without the goal of reproduction, is that urge not in some way bad? bastardized from its actual purpose in our bodies. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like temperance, right? Is there a certain level of it you can be allowed to have and then, you know, go no further? And I guess, at least in the Christian sense, that's, you know, you're you're married to one partner and, and that's that's as far as it goes. It seems odd now, and maybe it's, you know, kind of de-religionizing our society, but I think, you know, sex sells. This is... You know, the the ability to go online and, and see whatever anybody wanted to see. It has that been a net positive or pro- a net no, negative? No, I I think it's it's probably a net negative. Um and especially young people seeing it before they're probably ready and developing minds. You know, I, I think it, it gets ingrained and can change a person, especially as they're developing. It's probably a net negative, I would say, but I don't know. It's it's kind of like so that. Let's let's put it a different way. Put it a different way. So in the 1960s is when the you know quote unquote sexual revolution happened in the United States. The birth control pill came out. It was free love, you know, Woodstock, all that stuff. Prior to that, it's not that there wasn't you know sex outside of marriage and stuff like that, but it was kind of the it, we were still living under the Christian presumption that if you have sex, there's there is a good chance of you know, a kid being conceived. And if that kid's conceived, then, you know, it's going to be one of those, you know, short pregnancies because, you know, oh, they got married and six months later they had a kid type thing. There was that general belief that, oh, okay, we made this action and that shouldn't have technically happened outside of marriage. So we'll just fix that by getting married real quick. And then wildly available birth control, multiple sex partners that leads to the rise of of AIDS and, and, you know, other STDs. And then the general, you know, like you said, taking away the religion from the mainstream, the idea of free love now being kind of ingrained in how we talk about this. Would it be better to be exactly where we are right now or to be in the 1955 morality of how sex should See, this this is where I think Christianity is maybe going too far. I, I think currently our culture has gone too far in the other direction, but I don't know that, you know, abstinence or, or marriage is the... It's difficult. I, I, I don't know that that's... I think there was progress made and it continued to go too far. What was but, it progressing towards that was an end goal that you were... Yeah, you're right. Of? You're right, Paul. You're right. This is, this is the... And, you know, I'm not here to, to just, you know, beat you down about Christians being right about everything here. Of course we are. But... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, that's the, the part that I think people always, you know, mistake is that they say, oh, you know, we're aiming for progress. And says, okay, so what's the end goal? Is the end yeah, goal... Yeah, you're right to destroy marriage completely. No one gets married. You know, there are no two-parent households. 
if you have a kid, you can give it up for adoption right away. And the government just assigns it to an adult that makes over $100,000 and can then, you know, afford a child. Or was it a good thing that, that there are so many ways I want, I want to go off on that, but well, it, it, that, go ahead. Birth control kind of takes away responsibility and... I think, you know, if there, not, are, if and, there is no accountability or consequences for your actions, right, then there's no real incentive to either, you know, abstain or, or not. And, and that idea, that belief that, oh, because, you know, this piece of latex or this pill, the consequences of sex have been taken away. That is why we have, you know, 60 million abortions in America since Roe v. Wade, because, even though there there are consequences still in a lot of the way, whether it's an STD because you know no birth control is perfect at stopping that either, or a pregnancy which no birth control is perfect on stopping that either. Either way, those consequences then are still denied. They say no, you don't have to face those consequences because you can just go you know end the life of your child. So again, you know from the Christian perspective, that shouldn't be happening until marriage, but. You know, if it does happen in the in the you know lower T tradition, it was kind of just like, okay, well, you guys made your bed, now you got to live in it. You know, go get married and you know raise the child that you created together. But in our culture, we have in so many different aspects tried to take away the consequences of actions that we just want to generalize that at another point in time were viewed as you know very very serious. So, you know, hookup culture just says, you know, everything's fine, free love. And, and even the, the human body isn't built for that, right? Like when you have sex with someone, there are hormones, both for men and women that are released that effectively bond you to that person. So then when you do that with a bunch of different people, you have, you know, kind of a, a broken sense of relations with the people that you're intimate with. So there are consequences throughout some of the physical consequences, like I've said, they They've tried to deny or change or, or alleviate, but the end result of there still being consequences will never go away. And that that's why to me it's like and yeah, you talk about the you know, the the porn culture too and, and you know, not really having any way of protecting children from that with the prevalence of devices. Uh, that are connected to the internet, it's like, man, if it's me, it feels quite obvious that, yeah, yeah, 1955 morality on sex wasn't as free spirit, wasn't as free love, etc., etc., and yet society would be way better off for the average Joe Schmo if that were the way things happen still. I mean, and, you know, marriage rates are plummeting, reproduction, you know, ch- uh, birth rates are plummeting too, so... We will see what happens there. The the richest man in the world that is making big waves this week by buying Twitter has pointed out that problem pretty seriously in the West saying, guys, we're not anywhere near Earth's carrying capacity for humanity and dropping birth rates are a huge problem because when we have <laughs> a, you know, a retiree population that can't be supported because there aren't enough people that are being productive in the workforce, all of a sudden there are very dire consequences from that. Yeah. And I, I think another thing to point out, right, like uh, single parents, right, if if there's this idea that it doesn't really matter, you know, it was it was next and and then not not having that responsibility to you know take care of of a child or, you know, kind of leaving. It's it's definitely a lot different than, OK, well, we made this mistake or, you know, maybe that's a bad way to phrase it. But we we did this thing and the consequences you're now pregnant. So I guess we have to get married. Although that may not have been the best way to start a marriage, it still kind of holds both of them 
both individuals responsible for having to deal with raising a child. It does. And the, you know, one last thing I'll throw out there about the current, you know, culture is that the lack of responsibility ends up falling more on men because they can just say, oh, oops, I got you pregnant, you know, go get an abortion. I'll give you, you know, 75 bucks or whatever it is versus, you know, and if women want to say no, you know, this is real life, you know, yeah, you can maybe get some child support if you can actually make that happen. But there's nothing that can, you know, uh, pressure a man to actually make the right decision and care for the mother and child. So, um, and, and it's not uncommon at all for that to happen. I mean, the, yeah, I think it was 70 something percent of black children in 1960, you know, were raised in two parent households. Now it's less than 30%. So that change, when you talk about the incarceration rate, when you talk about systemic racism, you know, why are there four times as many? I don't know. That's a, I'm just throwing a number out there. I forget what it is, but there's a lot more abortion clinics in black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods. You know, there are more abortions in New York City by, from, uh, of black babies than there are black babies born alive in New York City. So when you look at these, you know, facts and you, and you talk about some of the problems today, it's like, it goes back pretty far to us abandoning responsibility and believing that these things can be separated when they really can't. But do you have anything else you want to throw out about sexual morality, uh, morality, or we can kind of talk about Christian marriage now too? Well, yeah, let's go into marriage. And uh, one of the one of the things that's kind of relevant in this chapter is uh, this idea that you know you fall in love and kind of live happily ever after. And the way he describes it is that falling in love is kind of the beginning, but by maintaining you know, a relationship through the hard points and, you know, the fun stuff, the ups and downs of life. It's not about, you know, falling in love and being in love. It's about loving one another. I thought that was an interesting idea. And I feel like Jordan Peterson has also talked about that. Yeah, he has. And yes, I, all of that is, is correct. And I agree with it. And the, one of the things that CSO says here that I think is, is very pertinent was saying, you know, and of course, uh, the promise I made when I'm in love and because I'm in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. So that's kind of the, the key there about what it means to, to be in love in a marriage. You know, it's, it's to continue to act out that loving, even if for whatever reason down the road, you know, that, that feeling isn't there anymore. It doesn't matter. You've made the promise to love and to hold, you know, until your last day. So you have to act that out no matter the trials and tribulations you go through in life. Uh, I may just be kind of repeating Jordan Peterson, but, you know, there's two definitions of of love there's you know the noun this this feeling this thing that you have for someone um and then there's also you know the verb to love right like care for that person love that person you know even even when you don't have love for them you know you can still act on it or act in a way of doing it you know yep absolutely yeah and and that's that's the point right is you gotta continue to act it out regardless of you know whatever issues are happening right now and that's you know, I think the introduction of no-fault divorce into the law said that that, you know, key principle of Christian morality around 
marriage is no longer the case. We're no longer going to live that way because, you know, there was a certain time in the country where, you know, you had to have a, a real grievance in order to get a marriage dissolved. And it's because the government was basically, you know, the reason for marriage was to encourage healthy growth of children. So if you can, you know, get a divorce without any real cause, just because you both kind of just say, eh, I give up, that's not good for children. So what's, you know, the, the reason for governmental institution of a you know, what is a Christian sacrament, marriage, was because the government has a vested interest in the next generation coming out up to be, you know, healthy, whole, productive citizens. So that change that said, oh, it doesn't matter, you can get divorced and, and remarried all the time without any cause, you know, it, it leads us to a place where the, the government isn't acting in its own interest to have a solid populace. It, it's okay with children growing up in broken homes, which of course leads to increase crime and increase XYZ, all the bad outcomes. So I, I found that he didn't really talk about that, but that was kind of my, my reflection on why this matters, you know, in the Christian pers perspective versus what we're living out as a society today in America. I would agree with that. So what else would you like to talk about in, in book three? Um, there were the cardinal virtues and then the theological virtues. Yeah. We can, uh, we can definitely talk about some of the theological virtues, if you want. I think one of the other things that he talks about, you know, so the theological virtues are, are faith, hope, and love, or charity. And those, I didn't really have a lot that was very interesting to talk about. I think the looking at the chief sin that he mentions of pride being what tears down uh, all other virtue is, is was really interesting for me. But on the, the theological virtues, what, you know, was there any takeaways that you want to discuss? Well, we, we kind of discussed faith, uh, you know, in our first part. But I think the, the ideas of, you know, hope and charity, I'd have to look back at, at the definition that he wrote of hope. But kind of what it meant to me was almost being an optimist, right? Like, yes, things are going to go wrong, but, but hoping for, for a better future and, and making, you know, taking the actions in order to help transcribe that new future. Yeah, and I think that's something that, uh, again, we've kind of abandoned in society. There's there's a bit of a nihilistic edge to our thought, and we've talked about it before, but, but the movement of pure self-love, it doesn't allow for hope of a better future because you have to accept how things are now. You know what I mean there? Yeah, and and also, you know, if you're solely self-dedicated to yourself, right, like you, you wouldn't matter or you wouldn't care what the future holds. And I guess you could also kind of relate that back into, you know, marriage and, and families. And I would think that, I don't know if there's any evidence to support this, but I would think that, you know, probably people that end up raising children probably care more about the future than, you know, those that don't. Just that's for the mere very true. thought of, you know, yes. part of me is continuing on, you know, and, and whether that's you know, even outside of kind of an afterlife, just a, there is some of me continuing on. So I want, I want this place to be better for them, you know? Right. You, you have a vested interest in, you know, the earth now continuing to be a better place than, than when you grew up. And I think really it's, it's sad to note that there is a, a huge percentage of, of our generation that doesn't want to have kids for that reason because they say the earth isn't going in the right direction whether it's you know i think there's a lot of it, a lot of it is because of climate change or, or kind of the idea that oh the earth isn't going to be a an okay place to to live it's going to be a you know wasteland type thing because of the way that we're 
treating the earth. But I think in a lot of senses, you know, on the other side, it's also, you know, the direction we are heading morally and the um, how the structure of society is is continuing to quote unquote progress. You know, it's saying, dang, it's it's really hard to raise a kid to have these, you know, uh, values that I would like to instill in them in the society that we live in today. So on both sides, there's a bit of that, like, you know, yeah. missing hope, you know? Yeah. What about faith? Well, we talked about it a little bit last time, and that was uh, just to, from what I remember, talking about, we kind of had a longer discussion on it, but it was, you know, is God in you? Are all the good things that you're doing, you know, motivated by God? Again, I, I think it's a trickier a trickier thing to discuss because faith yeah. has a few different meanings. Well, it does, and it's, it's actually kind of funny because he has two chapters back-to-back, uh, that are titled faith because the first one is kind of talking about the virtue. And then the second one is applied Christian faith essentially. So in looking at the first one, I thought the interesting point was, was basically how he, he says faith is retaining the belief that I logically had once when I no longer have that logic. So, you know, if, if you and I have this, this discussion, over a, a period of days, weeks, or months, and then at one point you agree with me to the point to say, yes, I, I think that what you're saying makes sense. This is the path that leads to, you know, the most real happiness in life, the most true happiness. And and perhaps, you know, it could be true that there is an afterlife and I would like to aim towards actually making it there where it's, you know, eternal happiness forever up there that, that would be awesome but then the next day you don't remember quite all of what we talked about and it, it's missing there so you, you have those doubts you have those other insecurities about the truth of the thought process you had faith is just that ability to say no I know I did believe and I believe for a reason and I'm going to choose to believe now despite my how unsettled I feel about it hmm. so so I thought that was that was an interesting way. I, I can't find exactly where in the book he says that, but he basically goes on that journey in the in the faith sections, and I, I thought it was very telling and a, and a really good way of putting it. Yeah, for sure. So that pretty much wraps up book three, right? Is there anything else we, we didn't really touch on that you'd like to? Uh, not so much. I think that's uh, okay. That, cool. That hits most of the you know the, the high points. There's there's other ideas and and things in here that again he's great at putting metaphors to uh to ideas yes so it's he, he is definitely worth uh taking a ponder if you happen to read this if you, if you have any inclination to exactly and what i'll be a little bit sensitive here we're already at about three quarters of an hour so in terms of wrapping up i i thought this book might be the one we talked about the least anyways just due to the fact that it's kind of a, a little bit of a higher level thought process this is beyond personality or first steps in the doctrine of the trinity so you know what we talk about here is the idea of only begotten son jesus being begotten from the father and and the Trinity kind of being the love that, that that begotten son shares with his father and those actually being three distinct people. And he uses a couple of really good analogies here, like, like you said, one of which is kind of just how a three-dimensional thing can look different if you were viewing it in one dimension versus if you were looking at it in two dimensions versus if you're looking at it in three dimensions. What did you think and, and what do you want to talk about in this book? Because we could probably go all over on it or, or talk about it very little and I'm okay with with whatever you prefer. 
Well, uh, one of the one of the interesting parts that he talks about is uh, time and beyond time. And uh, this metaphor, and I, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but was essentially to God is to us as an author is to, you know, his characters in a book. You know, the author may may have, let me, let me kind of rephrase it. The characters in a book are kind of living chronologically or without breaks and stops of time. Whereas the author, you know, could walk away and it could, you know, be 10 seconds in the book, but it could be days or months kind of in our, I guess, in in the author's world of him writing it. And I thought this was an interesting way to kind of, to kind of make it more understanding, you know, how God is kind of outside of our understanding of time. Yeah, I, I definitely having the the three dimensions of space that we inhabit, as well as having time, space, and matter, which are all conceptually basically linked. You can't have one without the other two. Which I don't remember if he goes through that in this book or if it was something else I was reading. But that goes to show that that if there is a God and He created this you know world that we're living in in this universe, that He has to be outside of of time. So I I always found that to be really uh, a consoling fact of, you know, the, the Christian faith is that, you know, say you have a family member that is ill, or if you have, you know, whatever's going on in your life that you would want to turn to the higher power and talk to about it, no matter when you do that, God receives that prayer outside of time. So he can apply any graces that he'd like to at the moment that it would be most needed, regardless of chronologically when you're when you're sending up that prayer. So that has always been really helpful. And, you know, he makes a quick analogy about the, you know, split second prayer of a, of a pilot with this plane going down. You know, God has the opportunity to take and savor and listen to what that prayer really was in, in, a, in an eternal view. So in that sense, you know, that kind of lends you to understanding how Christians believe that every person still has the opportunity right up until death to actually convert and say, I'm sorry for my wickedness. And, you know, I accept you, Jesus. And, I'm, and you know, uh, I believe in you and all of that. And, and to still have heaven as a result, to still end up there, because God has the ability to take that and understand that, you know, in that moment, the, the person was kind of twisting their internal selves and aiming it back at God. So I, I find that to be a, a really important point, actually, that, you know, yeah, he is he is outside of how we how we sense the world with, you know, time, space and that. And that's it's it's really a consoling fact to me. Now, the only the only thing I was thinking about was, does that mean that I don't know that he actually puts it this way, but if God is eternal and kind of outside of time, does that mean he already knows the future? And if so, does he already know, you know, who has accepted him and who hasn't? Or is he is he kind of only as far as we are? Do you get what I'm saying? I do. Right? Like in in the same sense the author is, you know, writing the story and can walk away. Time has stopped for those characters in the book. In a sense that author's time is still continuing. But if it's in the sense where you know, maybe the reader, right? The reader is reading a book, right? And he's kind of outside of the time of the characters because those events all happen within the book, whether it's, you know, the first person that read it or the millionth, those events are still the same. So in that regard, is God more like the author, do you think? Or more like a reader, if you understand my metaphor? I, I, I do understand your metaphor and it's really hard to answer because the way that I've always 
thought about it is that there is a kind of like, you know, a, a timeline like in a textbook that would be, you know, you can see all these different points that it's, it's showing what's happened in history and then it, you know, gets up to today maybe. I've always viewed God as kind of seeing all of history, including all of the future, not just to where we are here in 2022, but until uh, the final judgment in, in the Christian tradition. And he is, you know, in a way like a reader that he is following along and acting with us in, you know, the the time that we're living now. But that, that doesn't mean, maybe the best way to say it would be he's a reader, but he's already read the book once. Oh, okay. Interesting. Does, so he can simultaneously that... see. Now, I, I guess that brings up some more questions and you know maybe maybe we don't have enough time for it but you know well, i mean if we he's... don't really need to talk about anything else necessarily <laughs> so let's let's talk about what you want to talk about here so if he has read the book and he knows how it ends yes. and does that mean simultaneously he has made these changes it's hard it, are, are you asking are you asking about the the you know how that relates to free will yeah in a sense or, okay because that to me is like he can see he's fully outside of time so he isn't affected by the passing time that we have here but that doesn't mean that we still don't have the ability to make the choices we have he gave us the free will just because he can see how we're going to use it doesn't mean we don't have it so um, and that's why he is still you know uh, the holy spirit especially is is still very much active in the world and that is you know how what's what's the phrase it's it's you know god uh paints straight with crooked lines so at the end we are either submitting to his will or resisting his will but no matter what we do we're doing it to his ends and so that's that's really the best way i can put it when it comes to where we are versus where we're going i i think what matters the most is just acknowledging that we are ultimately responsible for all of our actions throughout our life so having that ability to turn and recognize when we've done wrong and take the time to acknowledge it and then commit to doing better in the future that is the that's kind of the the christian mission and i wish i, I wish i had it pulled up one of the things that he says is you know often it starts out with not necessarily being able to have the virtue that you're asking for right now. But sometimes the first step is having the power to always try again. Um, and, and I, I know I'm going a little bit on a tangent there, but that's, that's what, you know, that makes me think of is just, you know, yes, he, he is outside of time. He is viewing us all. Well, there was another analogy, man. C.S. Lewis had, had so many of them. One was like, he sees humanity as one tree that's constantly growing. Mm. And, and we are all, you know, that's why we're one body. Um, uh, if, you know, uh, one person is doing, you know, destructive things and, and that's, that's an organ, you know, that, that is in the body that you were a part of that is, you know, failing. So it's, it's so important not to think of people as being fully separate from you, but being fully related to you and, and you know, actually their outcomes mattering so immensely to you because it's actually you are part of the same living thing but that's it that's as far as i can go on a tangent so now you got something no but that's uh yeah, yeah. I, I would suggest, suggest that you know reading, reading book four 
is like, like, like you kind of said, there's it's, it's more difficult, difficult, I think, in a sense. I know kind of as I was reading it, I don't know that I was grasping everything kind of through book four. And, and I, I think, think it's worth kind of reading again. again. I don't, I don't know. know. Should, should we should we go, go on to our ratings? Okay. I I have one other thing to throw at um, the the listeners and view here from book four, which was let me see if I can find it here on page two hundred two. He talks about that is why he he warns people he being Jesus. That's why he warns people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says. If you let me, I will make you perfect. You know, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. That idea that he is taking you as a, you know, call you a building. And he is knocking down all the imperfections, all the broken windows, all the, you know, uh, doors that don't fit the the hinges as well. And he is taking you apart. And where you might have thought, oh, just fix the wall. It was a perfectly good wall there. Why are you taking a, a wrecking ball to it? <laughs> God says that he is building a palace and that he intends to come and live in it himself. So in order to kind of submit and and be a faithful Christian, you have to accept the full denial of yourself so that God can come and work in you to allow you to be filled with him. Uh, does that make any sense? Did you, did you read that part and, and what did you think of it? I think it makes sense in some ways. Um... In some ways. Oh, killer. <laughs> I guess it's... Right, that that's kind of the whole Christianity instead of you know the Christian Christianity and water, right? Like if you don't, if you're not fully bought in, you know, you're not going to receive all those gifts per se. Okay. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure. No, yeah. I, I I figured may not have a lot to throw at that, but I just wanted to to bring it up because I thought that was it was it, that was another very good analogy for you know the the difficulty of Christianity is 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 really that you have to recognize even you know after you start you may have bit off a bit more than you can chew in terms of you know how much you really need to change in your life and how much god's asking you to change in your life um, and that's why i think a lot of people quit before they really ever start and he says that too right he says yep. christianity has never been tried and found lacking it has been tried and found uh, it has been found difficult and not really ever fully tried but yes, I'm okay then with moving on as we approach maybe past the hour mark here. Just as a recap, we have done seven habits of highly effective people. Paul rated that an 8.2. Tommy decided to one-up him and rate it an 8.23. <laughs> For Atomic Habits by James Clear, Paul gave that an 8.8 .8 and Tommy gave that an 8.5. So I'm going to, since I had the fortitude and uh, courage to give the first rating, you gave a second rating. Now I'm going to let you once again give the first rating. Wait, uh, wait a second. <laughs> yes, we're not just going back and forth. This is a snake draft here, okay? So you have the first pick in the second round. Well, um, I think it definitely opened my eyes and gave some metaphors to Christianity that I, I haven't been privy to. And has definitely you know created a few different discussions. They're really thought-provoking. And I think that's that's where i get most of my rating from this i wouldn't say it's as helpful it's worth saying these are just different genres oh yeah right? for so sure for sure i mean so th those two were self self-development or self-help and this is just philosophy theology. yeah theology. yeah <laughs> i would say i would say this is an eight an eight for me solid eight 8.0 8.0 okay good for you i yeah this was this was really good for me it would just 
I mean, right, this is talking about stuff that in a sense I already know by, you know, I, I go to mass every week. I, I try to try to practice this stuff. But also having some of the metaphors talking about how he talks about faith, how he yeah, yeah goes through the different senses of morality and kind of just he makes it very logical in, in a way that most people that that do identify as Christian today can't quite articulate it. They know that this makes sense. They believe it. But being able to say it in layman's terms is, is quite difficult, and he really gives you the tools to do that. So I agree with you, you know, in terms of applicability, um, Atomic Habits was really good, and I've been able to take stuff out of that and actually continue it for, you know, a, a good period of time, which is awesome and, and isn't always true with the books I read. Um, for me, I'm going to put Mere Christianity at an 8.5. Uh, which exactly splits the difference there between and what's hilarious to me here is these are just great books oh we're yeah. really just picking out great books right because i mean me having seven habits is the worst one you now have mere christianity is the worst one we're both you know saying these are these are all great books yeah. so uh we hope to continue that we have an idea of what we're reading in the future but still feel free to reach out and let us know i think we've had maybe four or five uh, listener referrals to books they would like us to review. We are adding those in as we're planning out the rest of the year. And, and let us know, again, what talks are interesting. I think there's been some fun stuff that's happened in the past week that we might be talking about next week uh, that, you know, headlines might already be there that you guys can can maybe guess and we might have mentioned it already but give us uh you know leave us a review shoot a text message or, or a direct message to either of us if you're listening to this and you get something out of it and you appreciate it you know we're, we're doing this again to continue to grow and get better at communicating with you guys and living a thoughtful life so uh, we really appreciate the support and anything else that i'm forgetting here tommy should we exclaim our next book oh Next up, you want to you want to tell the listeners. All right, so next next up, and I think this will be in three weeks since this is the bonus episode. We'll be reading "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl, and so I think that'll uh, that'll have uh, a lot of good conversation around that. Fun fact ish: the first two books that we read had direct references to that book in them. Yep. And Mere Christianity probably would have if it hadn't been written and you know broadcasted prior to that book being published. So absolutely, we're, we're very much looking forward to, to that. That is, it seems like that's one of the foundational books that most other personal growth type books kind of refer back to because it, in a sense, it, it reached the base of the human experience. It, you know, it reached the, the base of depravity in the experience of concentration camps. So I'm, I'm really excited to discuss that with you. I have, this is the first one that either of us have any, well, that's not true. You read part of Seven Habits before, and I listened to this book, you know, audio version about four years ago now. So it's going to be really good to take some notes this time through and actually read it, uh, consume it in that way. But I know it was really moving the first time I read it. So I'm excited to do that with you. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful evening or rest of your day whenever you're listening to this. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow us on Instagram, our account is brace.2.2. And if you want to send us an email, our email address is brace22 at protonmail.com. 
We kindly ask that if you got anything out of this episode, you learned something or thought that some of our conversation was insightful, please pass this on to someone that you think could benefit from listening. We are relying on you to pass this on via word of mouth, and we appreciate every single referral. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll talk to you next time.